0: says so 2 Corinthians 11:16 to 12:10 I repeat let no one think me foolish but even if you do accept me as a fool so that I may too boast a little what I'm saying with this boastful confidence i say not with the lord's authority but as a fool since many boast according to the flesh i too will boast for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face to my shame I must say we were too weak for that but whatever anyone else dares to boast of I am speaking as a fool I also dare to boast of that are they Hebrews? so am I Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. often without food, in cold and exposure. And, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that that show my weakness the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man... In Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content... With weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong.
1: Father, as we still our hearts in your presence tonight, we thank you again for the opportunity to freely open your word and to ponder its truth together. We ask that you will help us tonight as we endeavor to do that. And we pray that as a result of our study, we might become a little bit more like Jesus. We ask humbly that you will do the work that only you can do by your Spirit through your Word. Help all of us, we ask. And we pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. I originally um, thought that we could just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 to 10. And then when I began to look at it this week, I it became clear to me that it, it would be difficult to do that because chapter one, chapter 12 verses 1 to 10 is part of a bigger discussion which actually begins uh, way back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So, I took the liberty of jumping back to chapter 11 verse 16 I didn't think that you would ever let me preach again if I went all the way back to the beginning of chapter 10 um, tonight. I think I might have been a little bit like the man who told his congregation one evening that he was going to preach through the entire Bible in the evening service, and he was preaching through the Bible, and he came to the book of Isaiah, uh, and he said, now what will we do with Isaiah? And one man shouted up from the back, well, Isaiah can have my seat because I'm off. Um, so I thought it might have been a bit like that if I had gone all the way back to Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. In this section of the letter, which follows a fairly lengthy extended section about the collection that Paul was trying to gather up from the churches around the Aegean Sea, uh, this collection, this gift that he was trying to take um, to Jerusalem. In this particular section that follows that, Paul is really answering a number of allegations that have been leveled against him by these uh, self-designated super-apostles, as they are referred to, who have infiltrated the, the Corinthian church. Now, he's already responded, by the time we get to 11.16, he has already responded to a number of these um, criticisms and uh, these derogatory comments that have been made about him. Uh, One of them is that he was very ordinary, and he was fairly unprofessional. Uh, The word that they used of him in chapter 10 verses 2 is that he was very worldly, uh, which is strange. We used to use the word worldly. I don't hear it used so much nowadays, but that was a word that was used of the Apostle Paul. In colloquial terms, they had basically written him off as an amateur and as a little bit of a loud mouth who had a lot to say in his letters, but actually when he was face to face with you, uh, he wasn't such a big shot after all. And Paul did agree in responding to those criticisms. He agreed that he wasn't a trained speaker. Uh, He did argue that although he wasn't a trained speaker, the message that he had given voice to had transformed lives. Surprisingly, even though he didn't have the gift, the supposed gift that others had, the message that he preached had transformed lives, obviously because it was empowered by the Spirit. In this section that we are looking at tonight, he is really answering a second charge, and that second charge is basically that he is embarrassingly weak. He's just embarrassingly weak. Uh, Boasting, I think, is a little alien to us here in Great Britain. Um, I think that It may be a little bit more acceptable in the North American culture where I lived for a few years. But in Britain, I think that boasting is something that we frown upon, we look down our noses upon. Um, In our culture, we seem to value people who are unassuming and humble. The culture to which Paul belonged, however, was vastly different. The Greeks believed that their leaders needed to tower above their peers. Uh, They needed to possess almost magical abilities. They needed to be the kind of people who came through difficulties and adversity almost unscathed and undoubtedly victorious. That was the kind of person that a leader needed to be. Things like heavenly visions were things that leaders were expected to experience and which these super apostles who had infiltrated the church at Corinth Uh, were laying claim to. At the very least, a leader needed to be strong and powerful. And if they didn't have the physique of a god, then they needed to portray at least an image of health and strength. A strong, dynamic personality was required. A leader needed to be self-confident and maybe a tad arrogant with it. Weakness was despised. Humility was not thought of as a virtue, it was a vice to be avoided. Great leaders needed to be self-assertive. They needed to be proud of themselves and their own achievements and their own accomplishments and their own abilities if they ever expected anyone else to follow them. So Paul didn't really make the grade as far as these super apostles were concerned. His physique was nothing special. He seems to have struggled with some kind of physical ailment. What that was, I'm not sure. He was anything but the epitome of strength. Um, indeed, he considered himself to be the epitome of weakness. But here in this section, Paul very uncharacteristically defends himself against these accusations and these derogatory remarks. Now, the problem is not that Paul feels hurt, and it's not that his ego has been wounded because people didn't think that he had much of a physical presence, and that he was a big boy in his letters, but face-to-face he really wasn't up to much. It's not that he had a wounded ego. The problem is that these so-called super-apostles were promoting a view of Christian leadership and of what it meant to be spiritual— that was misguided at best and was just downright evil at worst. They were offering a Jesus who no longer suffered, who wouldn't have carried the cross. They were promoting a Christian life that despised weakness. They had an illusion of ministry that suggested it had to be characterized by things like success and self-promotion. And so Paul wants to puncture this phony view of leadership and spirituality. He has to show the Corinthians the only reason that these super-apostles can present themselves as spiritual is because of their defective view of what it means to be spiritual. So he responds to their derision, and in responding he uses himself really as an object lesson he doesn't claim for a minute that the boasting he is about to engage in as he compares himself with these super-apostles, he doesn't claim for a minute that that is of the Lord. But he feels as if, if he wants to compete with these super-apostles that the Corinthians are snuggling up to, if he's going to compete with these super-apostles that the Corinthians have become infatuated with, he will need to play them at their own game… To get the ear of the Corinthians, he'll need to lower himself to their level and show the Corinthians that actually when it comes to boasting, he can match these super-apostles at every single point. In every single way, he can match the boasting and the achievements and the accomplishments of these super-apostles. His sarcasm in the early uh, verses that were read to us tonight are just absolutely brilliant. Can I ask you to put up with a little bit of my foolish boasting, he says to them? I just want to be like these wonderful people that you love so much. Would you allow me just to boast a little bit? Could I be a fool? You seem to like fools. So could I become a fool just to get your attention for a little while? His sarcasm is just really brilliant in this section. And it's interesting to notice the nature of these super apostles and the way that they were exploiting the Corinthians. Um, he deals with that. He, he, he talks about the, that, he, and, and he says in verse 21, to, to my shame, I admit that we're too weak for that, I'm too weak to exploit you, to abuse you, and to slap your spiritual faces. I I don't do that kind of thing. But these super apostles, they're doing that, and you're signing up for more. It's just unbelievable. And I think that's still true today. If you look across the Christian uh, world, you'll see that people who are exploited for some reason do not have the ability to see that they are being exploited by charlatans. And instead of running for their spiritual life and for sanity, they actually sign up for more. Give me more of this abuse. I love this exploitation. And they sign up for more and more and more. And Paul can hardly believe it. And his sarcasm in trying to draw their attention to what is happening is really quite something. Well, let's look at the things that Paul lists here by way of his boasting. Um, The first thing that he deals with is boasting about identity. He says in, in, in verse 22, he says, So are they Hebrews? So am I. And are, are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. It seems that Paul's opponents were Jews and they were trying to capitalize on their Jewish identity. And this would have appealed to people who had been converted from a Jewish background uh, in, in the church at Corinth. But it would have also appealed to those who were converted from a Gentile background. A little bit of Eastern religion thrown into the mix was regarded as very avant-garde in, in, in Corinth. But Paul's ethnic origins were every bit as impressive as the super-apostles. Are they Hebrews So my pure Jewish blood running through my veins, says Paul fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic, the languages spoken in Palestine. Uh, He was steeped in Hebrew culture. He was every bit the Hebrew that his opponents were. Are they Israelites? So am I. All the rights and privileges that belong to the Israelites are rightfully mine, says the apostle Paul. I too am an Israelite. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Paul was probably able to trace his family tree all the way back to Abraham. A friend of mine did a bit of work on his family tree and discovered that his forebears were sheep stealers in the highlands, and he decided to stop there and not go back any further to find out what else he might discover. Um, but Paul was able to trace his family tree all the way back to Abraham, it would appear. Are they servants of Christ? I am better, he says, these people claim to be servants of Jesus, then I am a better servant of Christ. And he can hardly believe what he has just said, and he says, I am talking like a madman, he says. But it's true, he had given his life to humble, sacrificial service. He had spent himself year after year in the advance of the kingdom of God. He had seen churches planted around the Mediterranean basin. He had been an outstanding servant of Christ, incomparable servant of Christ. The sheer madness of this kind of boasting prompts him to shift gears and to begin to boast about things his opponents probably thought was ridiculous. So the second thing that he begins to boast about is his suffering. I think that the super-apostles would have expected Paul's boasting to have gone like this, I've planted more churches, I've preached more sermons in a lot more regions, I've traveled more miles, I've seen more people converted, I've written more books, I've raised more money for missionary causes. That kind of boasting is the kind of boasting that they were used to and the kind of boasting that they engaged in. But instead, Paul begins to boast about his weaknesses, he says in 11 verse 23, "I've worked much harder, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely, and I've been exposed to death again and again." Is a leader in your thinking, says Paul to his listeners or his readers, does a leader in your thinking need to come through adversity unscathed and victorious? then let me tell you a little bit about the adversity that I have faced over a lifetime of ministry. Here is a list of things for you to ponder. Five times I received forty lashes. Forty lashes was a unique Jewish punishment. Forty stripes was the most that could be administered at one time. And if an executioner administered more than forty lashes, he himself would be punished. That's why they only administered thirty-nine. Five times he had received 40 lashes. Three times he had been beaten with rods, a Roman punishment. Where victims were stripped naked and beaten until the magistrate was happy that they'd had enough. Three, on 3 separate occasions he had been beaten. We know of one of them in Philippi, but we never read of the other two in the book of Acts, and we don't read of any of the five floggings that he received in the book of Acts. If the book of Acts does anything, it underplays the sufferings and the hardships of the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine what his back must have looked like? It must have been a mess, an absolute mess Once I was stoned, we know that he was stoned outside the city of Lystra. People thought he was divine. Some Jews came into Lystra and stirred up the crowds against him, and one minute they think he's divine, the next minute they take him out, and they have this stoning that takes place. What a mangled, disfigured body Paul must have had to have been beaten on eight different occasions, and then to have been stoned… Can you imagine for one minute what his body must have looked like in the aftermath of that? Three times, he says, I was shipwrecked. Maritime disasters were fairly common in the first century world fragile vessels, poor maps, no weather apps to tell them what the weather was going to be like. And this letter was written before the shipwreck that we read about in Acts 27. So there were three shipwrecks before Acts 27 that we never read about in the book of Acts. Five floggings, three Roman beatings, a stoning, three shipwrecks. That's a total of twelve near-death encounters. I've only had a couple of near-death encounters, and they were fairly scary. Here is a man who has come through suffering and adversity victoriously by the grace of God. The amazing thing about the Apostle Paul is that despite all of this, There is still more missionary work to come from him. He's not finished yet. There's still more to be done for the kingdom of heaven before he hangs up his preaching boots. Here's the third thing that he talks about, not just his uh, sufferings, but he talks about his weakness or about the dangers he has faced. Verse 26 constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. These were the days before bridges. Crossing swollen rivers wasn't as much thing fun as we might think it was. Bandits, robbers dotted the countryside and it was impossible for the imperial forces to police every square mile of the ancient world. In danger from fellow Jews, every city that Paul went into, there were Jews that rose up against him. I think in the book of Acts, the only city where Paul did not face hostility from, from Judaizers or from people from a Jewish background was the city of Athens. And that wasn't exactly a picnic either. Danger from pagans, think about the things that took place in Ephesus when the silversmiths rose up against him because they nearly went out of business. Such was the effectiveness of the preaching of the gospel. People stopped buying these little these little images of Artemis, and the silversmiths were in an uproar and rose up against him. Then he fourthly boasts about sacrifices that he had made, verse 27. I have labored and toiled, and I've gone without sleep, and I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food, and I've been cold and naked. Paul had chosen to work hard, not too many holidays, to all-inclusive resorts for the Apostle Paul. Um, I don't know anyone who accomplished more than he did. When you take into consideration the limitations of travel that he had to negotiate, He worked his socks off. His opponents probably regarded his toil and labor as a sign that that he was beneath them. Sleepless nights, maybe nowhere safe to sleep. The anxiety of the worry that went with caring for so many churches and being the go-to person for all of those churches. He had been hungry, thirsty, cold, and naked, I'm sure that there's a story behind every single one of those statements that's not even recorded in the book of Acts. His relentless travels, his pursuing himself to the limits, pushing himself to the limits, attacked and stripped by all kinds of thieves and and roaming parties of bandits. Who knows what he faced over a lifetime of ministry? If I could write one biography, I'd love to write the Apostle Paul's biography, I'd love to have the opportunity just to interview him about some of the details of his life. I think the Apostle Paul was one individual who lived life to the full for God. There was nothing that he wouldn't do for God, and there was nowhere he wouldn't go for God. He was prepared to do any, to do anything and go anywhere for God, and that was the kind of life that he lived. Fifthly, he boasts about pastoral worries. Besides everything, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, he says, and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul carried the burden of the churches that he had planted. And when they fought like cats and dogs, as they did in Corinth, Paul carried that in his heart. He wasn't joking with his friends, did you hear about the stuff that's going on in Corinth. It pained him greatly when he heard about what was happening in Corinth, and he carried that in his heart, and it drove him to distraction on occasions. Verse 29, is difficult to know how to take verse 29 in, in chapter 11, but probably best to take it as an elaboration of verse 28. When people fall, I feel the pain of their failure. When If someone is led into sin by some false teacher or false preacher or some evil friend, I'm burning with passion for that fallen soul. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 29. He loves the churches that he has founded. He loves every member in the churches that he has founded. And then sixthly, he boasts about his own weakness. Uh, Verse 30 and 33 are really just brilliant. He talks about being let down from the walls of the city of Damascus in a basket. And it's it's really so ironic because back in the day, if you were a soldier, for instance, of Alexander the Great, you would get a prize for being the first person over the wall as you besieged a city. But here, Paul is boasting about being let down from the wall to run for his life. Paul is turning the glamorous picture of leadership and spirituality that his Opponents had sold to the Corinthians. They would have been looking for things like, I have six letters from prominent philosophers in Athens to support me. Three times I've spoken at imperial events. I've had a reception with the emperor. I've been rewarded with accolades beyond that of my peers. I'm really quite fabulous. Don't you love me? That's what they would have expected. Paul, on the other hand, says, I have labored and scurried and suffered as I've gone from one place to the next. Greatness is to be found in Christ-likeness. Greatness is to be found in sacrifice and suffering. Greatness is not to walk onto the stage of the church in Corinth and say, "'Don't you love me?' Greatness is to be found in watching someone taking up their cross and following their master." That's Paul's perspective. And then finally, he boasts about supernatural experiences. It seems that the opponents of Paul were pretty big into their spiritual experiences. Uh, The ecstasy was a big thing in the mystery religions of the first century, and there must have been a touch of this thrown into whatever kind of heresy had infiltrated Corinth. And these super-apostles could point to many such experiences. And Paul says, so they've had fantastic spiritual experiences. Well, let let me tell you about my spiritual experience about 14 years ago. I I knew a, a man once, and whether he was in the body or not in the body, I'm not sure. What I do know is that he was caught up into paradise or up into the third heaven, and he heard inexpressible things. Things that he was not, no one is permitted to even tell. No one really knows when this happened in the Apostle Paul's life. Did it happen the day that he was stoned outside Lystra? I have a little tendency to think maybe. But the truth is, nobody knows. Was it a near death experience somewhere on his journeys, missionary travels that yielded him a glimpse of heaven? couple of things to say about this spiritual experience of Paul first of all it was rare it happened 14 years previous so it's not something that was happening every day it's not something that happened every sunday when he came to church it happened once in a lifetime 14 years ago he says it was vivid whether it was in the body or out of the body he doesn't know in other words it was so vivid he didn't know if it was a vision or if it actually physically happened to him it was unique About a man like this I will boast, Um, he says, and it was personal. He saw things that he wasn't permitted to tell others, and he never spoke about it anywhere else in his writings. It wasn't just something that he could get up and share in his testimony. He saw things and experienced things that he wasn't even able to describe. He couldn't put into words they were so glorious. There's one thing worth noting about this and it's and it's the point that paul makes that although he could have boasted about this experience he chooses not to he's not going to take this experience that he had which he speaks about in the third person it's so glorious he can't even speak about it in the first person he speaks about it in the third person he's not going to use this to authenticate himself it's too personal to do that and it's too costly It was too costly, because he says that he was given a thorn in the flesh to stop him from becoming conceited, proud, arrogant, boastful of that spiritual experience. Now, it's mostly believed that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some kind of physical ailment, I've read all kinds of theories this week. Some people think it was his failing eyesight at the end of Galatians. He writes, see with what big letters I write. Maybe it was his failing eyesight. I think it's John MacArthur that believes it was difficult people in his life. I have a tendency to think because it was a thorn in the flesh, it was some kind of physical ailment. Was it the the aftermath of being stoned outside Lystra? I mean, you're stoned you're going to be left with some kind of physical, ongoing physical consequences of having been stoned. The truth is, nobody really knows what the thorn in the flesh was in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. But it's interesting that he says, it was given to him as a messenger from Satan. A messenger from Satan? If Paul's thorn in the flesh was a physical ailment, you can see how Satan would use that. If you didn't have this, you could have done that. If you hadn't this, you could have gone there. If you didn't have this physical ailment, you could have been a great, great person, a great, great preacher. You could have accomplished so much more. And he had this messenger from Satan that constantly buffeted him, And it stopped him from becoming conceited and arrogant and proud. It constantly kept him humble. Whatever this thorn in the flesh was, it constantly kept him humble and kept his feet on the ground. And we say to ourselves, well, if it was a messenger from Satan, couldn't Paul have prayed for deliverance from it? Sometimes God allows Satan to inflict us in his purposes. That was the case with Job, wasn't it? God said to Job, go ahead, then you can penetrate the hedge that that is around Job. I'll let you do that. You can take his family, and, and you can touch his health, but you can't touch his life. And God did allow the hedge to be penetrated. And one would assume the same was true of the Apostle Paul. God allowed Satan to use this to buffet Paul and to keep him humble. And sometimes… God answers our prayer by saying no. He prayed on three separate occasions that this thorn in the flesh would be removed, and God said no. Isn't it a good job that God sometimes says no? How awful it would have been if God always says yes. Can you imagine Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane if it's possible to let this cup pass from me? then let it pass from me now. The answer is no, it's not possible for that cup to pass from you. You must drink it on their behalf. I don't want them to drink it for all eternity, the cup of my wrath. You must drink it. It's a good job that sometimes God says no. And God said no to Paul on three separate occasions in regard to this thorn in the flesh. But that's not all Paul said. He also said My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. If God leads us to it, His grace will sustain us in it. That's what we learn from that great statement, My grace is sufficient for you. As your days, so shall your strength be. Isn't that the promise? God will give us the grace that we need to face every circumstance and every trial. And it's easy to say that from the front of a building such as this, in a congregation such as this. And I know all about the hardness of life. But we must claim the promise and cling to the promise that God's grace will be sufficient for whatever the circumstances. Whatever that thorn was, it was a constant reminder to Paul of his own weakness and of his own absolute dependence on the Lord, and he boasted in that. Because it's when we are weak that we are strong, Second Corinthians 12 verse 10. When I am weak, then I am strong. When a person, a man or a woman, feels their inability… It is then that God can work in them and through them and for them. We used to use words like brokenness, and you don't hear so much about the word brokenness nowadays. But when we feel that we are the answer, when we feel as if we've got all of the solutions, when we're in a place where we think that we are amazing, we don't really have much need of God, do we? But when we know that we can't do it, when we know that we are at the end of our own resources, when we feel as if we've got nothing left to give, it is then that we turn to the one who can actually do something, and who can actually do something about the circumstances that trouble us. When I am weak, he says, then I am strong. Grant it, Jesus. This is my song, daily walking close to you. Let me walk, dear Lord, let me walk close to you. This is challenging. I I find this challenging Asked to fill in a resume or an application form. We do everything that the super apostles would do. I have three theological degrees. I've pastored two churches. I'm I fabulous. Don't you love me? We do everything that the super apostles do. Not many of us would say things like, I've worked myself into the ground. I've been rejected by some sections of the church for being a little bit too passionate about the truth. I've suffered mentally because of the stresses of ministry. But in all of this, I experienced the sufficiency of God's grace. Not many of us would write that on an application form. In all of this, I experienced God's strength when I was weakest. Let me just finish with this one story. John Stott tells this story from 1958 when he was leading a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. The day before the final meeting, Stott received word that his father had passed away. In addition to his grief, Stott was also starting to lose his voice. Here's how Stott describes the final day of that outreach. It was already late in the afternoon, within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission, so I didn't feel I could back away at that, at that time. I went to the great hall and asked a few students to gather around me, and I asked one of them to read 2 Corinthians 12 verses 8 and 9, "'My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness.'" I asked one of the students not only to read this verse, but then to lay their hands on me and to pray that those verses might be true in my experience that night. When the time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and narrow way from Matthew 7. I had to get within half an inch of the microphone, and I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. Then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response, larger than any of the other meetings during the mission, as the students started to flock forward. I've been in Australia ten times since 1958, and on every occasion I have been in Australia, somebody has come up to me and said, Do you remember the final meeting of the university mission in the Great Hall? Stott would reply, I jolly well do. I remember it well. Well, they would say, I was converted that night. Because it's when we are weak that we are strong, it's when we see that we cannot do it by ourselves. That God has an opportunity to step in and do it for us and do it with us. But when we think that we are fabulous, then we don't have much need of God, and we trundle along on our own resources. Says the Apostle Paul, when I am weak, it's then that I am strong. This relates not just to missionary work. It relates to every area of life. My wayward children… I cannot fix them, God, but you can, and I'm just going to pour my heart out to you and seek you for your intervention. Facing cancer, I can't do this, Lord. I don't have the strength by myself. I'm just going to depend solely on you and in your strength. It's then that we're strong facing unemployment and the frustrations of trying to find a job. I can't do this. It's weighing me down, Lord. When we are weak, it's then that we are strong because it's then that we start to look for God's help in the way that we should. Thank you for your attention tonight and over the last um, three nights that I've had the privilege of speaking to you. It's been a great joy, and thank you so much.